You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. On Citizens' Legal Rights, Vice President Dick Cheney personifies dishonesty. In May of 2004, he gave a speech at Walmart's corporate headquarters in Arkansas, where he said, quote, junk lawsuits are cluttering the courts, weakening our economy, hurting employers and workers. It was surely music to Walmart executives' ears as the company was facing a series of lawsuits from its employees over sex discrimination and violations of workplace and wage laws. And the rhetoric from Cheney certainly sounded good, except for one hitch. Cheney railing on lawsuits is about as credible as Wilt Chamberlain preaching abstinence. In just the five years that Cheney served as Halliburton's CEO, the corporation was involved in 151 court claims it filed in 15 states. That's an average of 30 lawsuits per year under Cheney's leadership. Though Halliburton makes billions each year, no lawsuit seemed too small or, quote, frivolous to the company under Cheney, as it sued some debtors for as little as $1,500. David Sirota is the founder of the Progressive Legal Action Network, a senior editor at In These Times magazines, and a full-time blogger for Working Assets. His new book is Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Can Take It Back. Welcome to the program, David. Thanks for having me. David, tell us a little bit about the setup of your book. You have you tell us who the book is for, not for, and you've uh, set it up in some sections. And within each section, you have lies, myths, big lies, heroes, hacks. Tell us a little bit about how and why you decided for that setup. This book is meant to be a user's guide, a reference book for citizens who know that their government is selling them out, but who want to know exactly how it's selling them out and how we take our country back. And so the book is set up so that folks know what they should read, what they don't have to read. They can thumb through this book and read pieces of it. It's meant to be ideally for you when you sit and watch the news one night or you pick up your your morning paper and you see one of the major economic issues addressed in that on the news program or in that paper. And you can flip to the section of this book and see how the politicians in those stories are likely lying to you or misleading you. And then at the end of each chapter, there's simple policies that could be implemented right now that would actually address these economic issues in a way that would help ordinary citizens and not just the big money interests that own our political system. All right. Well, let's just dive right in. You start out with taxes. It takes up one of the biggest sections of your books. President Bush just signed a big tax relief bill. Tell us about that bill and where it fits into what your book is about. Well, the tax bill that he signed uh, was a $70 billion extension of some of his tax cuts, some of his earlier tax cuts. It was in the same budget that enacts massive cuts, for instance, to various programs that serve the middle class and ordinary citizens. So from the get-go, we see that his tax cuts are in a budget that deprioritizes services for ordinary citizens and prioritizes giving away cash to wealthy people and big corporations. But perhaps even more odious about his tax bill and how it fits into this book is that it was reported that the tax bill actually only extends those tax cuts that help the very wealthy. That is the 
dividend tax cut, the tax cut on capital gains. The stats are, I believe, that those making over a million dollars get several hundred thousand dollars a year in new tax cuts because of this. Those making between fifty and sixty thousand get about fifty dollars. And the tax cuts that weren't extended as part of this bill also tell a story. The tax cuts uh, and tax relief for college savings was not extended. And so essentially what this book says in the beginning chapter is that when you hear politicians talk about quote-unquote tax cuts, most of the time they're talking about tax cuts for everybody other than ordinary citizens. They're talking about corporate tax cuts and they're talking about the kinds of tax cuts we just saw President Bush sign that only affect a tiny number of super wealthy people. One of the themes of this book is what you call the race to the bottom. This is a fascinating theme, and I'd like you to explain it a little bit and explain how this tax cut fits into the race to the bottom. The race to the bottom that I talk about is how government policy is being used to pit different sets of working people and ordinary citizens against each other in a economic race to the bottom or a sort of a social da- uh, economic Darwinism. The best example of this or one of the examples of this is on taxes we just talked about and how essentially as the Pulitzer Prize winning author David K. Johnston notes in his book how the tax system today literally takes money from those making between about $40,000 a year and $500,000 a year and siphons it up the income ladder to those making tens of millions of dollars a year. But it goes beyond just taxes. I think the best place to see the race to the bottom is on trade policy. Right now, we have a trade policy, a quote-unquote free trade policy, that is free of all labor, human rights, wage, and workplace protections. Of course, these trade deals are not really free. They're filled with protectionist measures for corporate profits, patent protections, copyright protections. That's why these trade packs are thousands of pages long. But a trade policy that is absent protections for workers creates naturally a race to the bottom. And here's how it works. The CEO of GE once said he wants a trade policy that allows companies to have all of their factories on barges. That is, that the the barge can move to the cheapest labor pool or the country with the worst environmental laws possible. And so what, what happens in a trade policy, and we have a trade policy like that, is that American workers are forced to compete with workers who make a dollar a day. They're forced to compete to cut their own wages to try to be economically competitive in terms of overhead costs for business. And so our trade policy is literally encouraging and putting a value on countries who have the worst human rights records, the worst environmental records, the worst wage records. And as I say in the book, basically our trade policy is headed towards a a place where we put the most value on countries like North Korea, where a country that has one-third of its population enslaved, that they don't have to be paid anything. That's what our trade policy now values because our trade policy doesn't say that if companies want to sell to Americans, they actually have to, for instance, treat their workers better. They have to respect the environment. Because our trade packs don't say that, we are creating an economic race to the bottom where our workers are competing with other countries' workers to undercut each other on the most basic economic rights. I'd like to talk to you a bit about the institutes, policy institutions, the think tanks that publicize a lot of the, the what so-called facts and um, ideas. Tell us a little bit about these places, 
where they get their funding from, what their goal is, and how they play a part in helping to move the government towards being more of a corporate entity. There are a number of very prominent think tanks that bill themselves as nonpartisan that are funded by massive amounts of, of, of cash from corporate interests who then benefit from the propaganda that these institutes put out under the veneer of being nonpartisan. And I'll give you just some examples of how out of control this really has become because what happens is these these quote-unquote nonpartisan think tanks get quoted in the media. Their, their materials get parroted by lawmakers who are similarly bought off by the same interests in terms of campaign contributions. And it really has pushed our political system to a truly extreme level. And I'll just give you an example. This is from the energy chapter. Uh, the Libertarian Cato Institute, this is an organization that has received grants, big grants from Chevron and ExxonMobil. This institute has issued a report claiming, quote, fossil fuel resources on the planet Earth are becoming more abundant and not more scarce. Okay. Then there's the Ed, Ed Fuelner. He's the president of the Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell-funded Heritage Foundation. He actually wrote an op-ed on Earth Day saying that cars, quote, clean our air. And he said that's proof that, that we don't need to improve fuel economy standards in our country. Um, the Heritage Foundation's media spinoff, townhall.com, published an op-ed from right-wing pundit John Stossel headlined, quote, in praise of price gouging during the 2005 energy crisis. So as more and more Americans were struggling to pay their skyrocketing energy costs, Stossel was publicly arguing that, quote, price gougers save lives, thus creating a veneer that we don't need a federal price gouging law when it comes to energy. So we see how th this has created an echo chamber, and this is parroted by people in government, by prominent lobbyists. I mean, it was the prominent lobbyist Charles de Bona, who heads the oil industry's lobbying firm, that said, quote, the world is not running out of oil. In fact, it will never run out of oil. He was saying this, again, to justify more drilling rather than better fuel economy standards or better, better fuel efficiency measures. So all of this is just one example. All of this creates a public rationale for legislation and policies out of Congress that never actually challenge big money interests. They never, in this case, they never actually challenge the oil companies or the profiteering energy industry because there's a, a rationale that what is going on, that, that the middle class being bled dry, is, is somehow uh, legitimate. Tell us a little bit about how NAFTA plays a part in the current big discussion about illegal immigration and also how it plays a part in helping to drive down the wages of Americans. Well, let me step back and say that I think we can really see how deeply rooted the hostile takeover of our government is by big money interests in the fact that nobody is really talking about NAFTA as we have this immigration debate. That we're having an immigration debate that focuses on citizenship rights and border security, but not why there is such serious pressure at our southern border. Why are people, are Mexicans, leaving their families, risking their lives, traveling across deserts, trying to evade law enforcement uh, to get here? Why are we not talking about what their, what their motivation is? Uh, and I don't think it's a nefarious motivation. I think that the stats clearly show that since the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement, Mexico's economy has been destroyed. 
uh, and it's been deliberately destroyed. Uh, the, the NAFTA was, was designed to create and solidify Mexico as a cheap labor pool. And since NAFTA has passed, 20 million more Mexicans now live in poverty. The fact that we're having an immigration debate and not talking about reforming NAFTA to improve the lives of Mexicans shows just how much big money controls our political debate. NAFTA was originally sold to us as a way to drive down illegal immigration because it was supposedly going to improve Mexican wages and Mexican living standards. Now we're not talking about it because while NAFTA is at the heart of our illegal immigration problems, it is also a trade pact that has seriously benefited corporate America through cheap labor, through creating maquiladoras that don't have to respect environmental, environmental laws like they do here in, in the United States. And so, so the fact that, we're, that there's silence on this issue should tell everybody everything they need to know about how bought off our government is. And I would argue that unless we do start talking about NAFTA and reforming NAFTA and putting in labor and environmental and human rights standards, standards that were stripped from the bill by President Clinton, unless we start talking about that, we're going to be having this illegal immigration debate two, three, or four or five years from now. It's going to be this, we're not going to address the problem. This is interesting because this is one thing I noticed about your book. You seem to be equally happy to take shots at Democrats and Republicans. They're all, as you would would have us believe, part of the hostile takeover. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I don't think they're all part of it. And I, each chapter has, has two heroes and two hacks. And I certainly uh, don't have any problem exposing bought-off Democrats or Republicans. I think, as, as I argue, there's been... Typically in this country throughout history, there's been one big business party, and then there's been one party that's been of the people, if you will, and that has created some equilibrium up until now. Now I think we have about one and a quarter or one and a third big business parties, which explains why the political process has shifted so radically recently towards big money's agenda. Uh, I think that, I think though, that that means that there still is 75% of the Democratic Party in Congress uh, that is fighting against the hostile takeover. And so people have asked me, well, why don't you just give up on the Democratic Party? Well, because I think that there's a battle for the soul of the party going on right now. And I, I am an optimist. I think that our side, and, it, and I consider my side to be the small d Democratic side as opposed to the Democratic Party side. I'm for democracy. I see our side as, as fighting back and potentially winning. And I think the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party is integral to whether we really can, as I say in the cover of the book, can take our government back. I think we can. I think the Democratic Party can. But I don't think it can without a serious fight and without going after those within the Democratic Party's ranks who are actively undermining uh, the fight to take our government back. Tell us about some people who are doing good, some heroes. Some A couple of heroes that I found interesting were Elizabeth Warren and Marsha Angel because they were getting information out. Yes, uh, those are those are are, are two good examples. Um, Elizabeth Warren is a Harvard professor of law who has uh, made analyzing and disseminating information about about Americans' personal debt her sort of specialty. She, for instance, during the bankruptcy bill debate, this was a bill written by the credit card industry to gut consumer bankruptcy protections while expanding bankruptcy protections for the wealthy and corporate America. She 
the one of the big myths coming out was that you know this bankruptcy bill was was in order to to supposedly crack down on irresponsible people and i have a whole section on on how politicians kept saying that people who go bankrupt are essentially irresponsible well she published a uh, a report showing that most bankruptcies in america are caused by medical bills and job loss not by irresponsibility or or overspending on sort of frivolous needs or frivolous you know materialistic wants on credit cards so she really helped debunk this and i think exposed congress for for its corrupt ways marcia angel or she was the former editor of the new england journal of medicine she's been a real leader when it comes to when it comes to healthcare she's been a a physician a leading voice in the physician community talking about the need to move this country towards a universal single payer healthcare system physicians speak with a level of of authority and i think that she has essentially been somebody who has added the weight of the medical community towards Americans' desire to see a universal health care system. And remember, Americans do desire a universal health care system. Polls consistently show this. The politicians don't want to talk about it because it would threaten HMO profits. But I think with people like uh, Marsha Angel uh, and others fighting for this, I think we're going to get it at some point in the future. Tell me a little bit about Peter Rost. Dr. Peter Rost, sure. He was an, an executive at Pfizer. He essentially came out and told reporters and the and the public that the drug industry's propaganda about drugs from Canada and abroad, the propaganda is that they're unsafe and that's why Americans shouldn't be able to buy them. Uh, he came out and said that that's a lie, that it's not true, that Americans should be allowed to buy lower-priced, FDA-approved prescription drugs from abroad, and that the drug industry was trying to unnecessarily and dishonestly scare people. And of course, the the rationale for the federal government barring citizens from from purchasing lower-priced drugs is that they're unsafe. Now, there's hypocrisy in this all over the place. Uh, uh, For instance, you know, our government that's supposedly a quote-unquote free trade government won't let citizens purchase medicines from other countries. Of course, we're totally allowed to buy, uh, you know, food, lettuce, you know, even even beef after a mad cow scare. That's all fine, our government says. That's free trade. But we're not allowed to, to buy medicines from Canada because supposedly uh, they're unsafe. So Dr. Roast came out and said, this is a lie. Uh, he actually ultimately forced the FDA to admit that this line was a lie. Now, we still haven't gotten legalized importation of prescription drugs. But what he has done as a whistleblower is, again, help expose exactly how our politicians are lying to us in order, in this case, to protect pharmaceutical industry profits. If we all are aware that the politicians are lying to us, how do they keep getting elected? That's a good question. Um, I think that that money now plays such a huge role in our politics uh, in running for office that that it's hard for good people and honest people to have access to the system. Because of the rise of television and, uh, and electronic media as the primary mode of communication in a campaign, and because our country does not have a public financing system of elections, and thus our candidates have to get the resources to get on TV from big money interests, we have a system that essentially, in many ways, locks out honest voices. And if not lock out, then makes it 
disproportionately difficult to be an honest voice in a political system. And as I argue in, in the section on the chapter on how we take our government back, I argue that we really need to make public financing of elections uh, a, a central goal for anybody, liberal, conservative, Republican or Democrat, who wants to see their government taken back. We have to give good people a way to run for office that allows them to not have to be a specialist in shaking down big money interests. Right now, we have a system that selects for people who are good at shaking down the wealthy and corporations for campaign cash. We have to have a system whereby somebody who wants to run for office has an alternative way to run for office where they can run a well-financed campaign. This has been passed, by the way, in, in various states and municipalities, not, not all liberal uh, you know, Arizona, a conservative state, has a public financing system of elections. And I know the, you know, I know the criticism as well. You know, why, why should we support, quote unquote, welfare for politicians? Why are we just going to give politicians more money? Well, my answer to that, and I think everybody's answer to that, should be we get what we pay for. Somebody's going to pay for these elections. Somebody is paying for these elections. Big money interests. And most politicians, though not all, but most, respond more to the big money interests who fund their campaigns rather than to their constituents. So if we want a government that responds to constituents, we, the constituents, the public, has to finance these elections. Tell us a little bit about the Internet. You're a blogger, davidserrata.com, serrata.com. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about the Internet and the current battle that we're seeing right now playing out where the big money wants to start charging more big money to allow other big money to move their bits through the ether. This is the net neutrality debate. We see the telecom companies trying to uh, essentially put up a, 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 a fee, if you will, a toll on the information superhighway, which, of course, smaller information providers would have a harder time uh, paying for. So, in other words, what's happening is almost analogous to what's happened to our politics. It used to be that folks could run for office in the sort of non-information age, running field campaigns that were less expensive. Now, because you have to get on TV and get into the electronic media, the cost is so much higher. It's the same thing that's going on on the Internet. Right now, we're in a, in a place where providing information on the Internet is relatively cheap. Anybody can, rel can basically get on the Internet and, and set up a website for a pretty low cost. What's going on now is that one set of big money interests, the telecom companies, are trying to raise that, are trying to, uh, in, and they're, they're raising it, frankly, they're, they're trying to do it just because they want to make more money. And I don't blame them for wanting to make more money. Where the blame gets in is, and, and I should say, step back and say that in all of these issues, I don't blame the corporate forces for trying to make as much money as they can. That's what they are set up to do. Legally, a corporation is set up to make money. That's what it's set up to do. The blame in the net neutrality debate and in the other issues in this book goes to the government. The government is supposed to be separate from that. The government is supposed to protect society's interests in the face of an unbridled profit motive. In the net neutrality debate, the government is supposed to, to step in there and say, we, the public, the government, help subsidize originally the Internet. We, the government, a.k.a. the public, demand something in return for that. In this case, we demand that there is no increased toll on the Internet, that the Internet can remain a haven of small-D democracy. And we're going to see how this plays out. I, I, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this plays out. Let's talk a little bit about prescription drugs. 
yesterday or a couple days ago, we had the prescription drugs deadline. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on how this bill came to pass and who benefited and who lost. Well, this is the Medicare bill. This is one of the biggest travesties to pass in recent years, although I argue that it's actually one of the best things that we can hope for from a corrupt government. And here's what I mean. The best thing we can hope for from a corrupt government is that politicians will take a huge chunk of the taxpayer's cash and throw it at an industry to bribe it to do what the government could mandate for free. So in this case, we took a trillion dollars of taxpayer money and gave it to the pharmaceutical industry to get them to provide medicines to seniors instead of saying, like every other industrialized country in the world, there's going to be some regulation on the price of drugs, that, that drug companies are not going to be allowed to profiteer. We don't have laws like that. We don't have laws like that, and we are subsequently charged the highest prices in the world for medicine. And I should add that we are charged this, these high prices, even though one-third of the research and development into drugs is funded by taxpayers. So we're not even getting a return on our investment. We're getting shafted. And so this Medicare bill just gave away a trillion dollars without demanding anything in return. We've gotten an inadequate benefit for seniors. And perhaps even worse, the bill includes a ban, language banning the government from negotiating lower prices from the drug companies like every other business in America demands with their purchasing power. So our government can't negotiate lower prices to save taxpayer money. Uh, this bill came about because the pharmaceutical industry spends tens of millions of dollars a year on campaign contributions and lobbyists. There's more than one lobby, one drug lobbyist in Washington for every member of Congress. This came about, and the people who passed this bill were rewarded by the pharmaceutical industry. I'll give you just some examples. The head of the House committee that wrote this bill, Billy Tozen, immediately after the bill was was completed, he was offered a multi-million dollar a year job as the drug industry's top lobbyist. The head of Medicare, Tom Scully, who helped write the bill, he immediately left his job after the bill was passed and became a healthcare and pharmaceutical industry lobbyist. The chief of staff on the Senate Finance Committee, he became a drug industry lobbyist after this bill passed. And the chief of staff to the top Democrat on the fi Senate Finance Committee, Max Baucus, he immediately after the bill passed got a $160,000 contract to be a drug industry lobbyist. So we see that this is really a pay-to-play system, that money goes in and taxpayer money goes out, and those who help make, the, make that happen are rewarded. One of the things that I found very interesting was the way that perspective is used to shift the debate. For example, on the asbestos lawsuit, it's portrayed, as you say, as an irresponsible class, action, class lawsuits, but what you're really doing is beating up on sick people. That's right. And, that's, and the asbestos uh, litigation situation is actually um, particularly, I think, important. The president and the administration has basically said that those who are filing lawsuits against their former employers for asbestos poisoning are filing frivolous lawsuits. These are people who have been poisoned and, and, and in many cases killed. And the president, we have a system that's so corrupt that it's now become okay for our president and our top politicians to run around saying that those people 
who were injured, sickened, and killed shouldn't be able to fight back in court for this abuse. For instance, I mean, let me give you some scope on, on this abuse. Prosecutors, for instance, in one Montana town found that the company, the mining company, knew that it was releasing cancer-causing asbestos into the air and tried to hide the danger to workers and townspeople. Prosecutors noted more than 1,200 people in this one town became ill and many died. In all, almost 10,000 people now die every year because they were exposed to asbestos. Meanwhile, in his 2005 State of the Union speech, President Bush came out and said, our economy is held back by irresponsible class actions and frivolous asbestos claims. So he's blaming people who were sickened and killed for hurting the economy, not the companies that knowingly poisoned these people. That is how corrupt a system we have. And this passes without much of a peep without much of an, any outrage from the media, without as much as any sort of objection from either political party. Another technique you talk about is where politicians will make claims on one side and then on the other. This is bad. Oh, no, this is good. This is bad. This is good. It's a really interesting technique, and I wonder if you care to discuss that. Sure. I talk about that, for instance, when it comes to the free market. I'll read you a section from the, of the book from the introduction. We hear a lot about how wonderful the free market supposedly is and how politicians just love the free market. She, you know, they're big into the free market. But what they're really into is the free market only when it helps their campaign contributors and their anti-free market when it, when it might hurt their campaign contributors. So, so here we go. So in one breath, politicians tell us price controls for prescription drugs are bad. That's a free market, you know, because of the free market. Price controls are anti-free market. But restrictive patent laws that keep drug prices high, restrictive patent laws that are anti-free market, we're told those are good. Regulations against energy price gouging are bad because we're told that that's against the free market. But government handouts and subsidies to energy companies, though that's an anti-free market policy, we're told that that's good. Protecting American jobs and our trade deals, that's, that's called anti-free market. We're told that that's bad because it's anti-free market. But government help and subsidization of job outsourcing to other countries, we're told that's good, even though those subsidies are entirely anti-free market. So in short, what we're being told is that government and the free, the free market is only okay when it's helping a certain sect of people and it's not acceptable when it might help the broad population. Just to go back to another example of this is the prescription drug reimportation debate. We're told that that the free market mandates that we sh we must allow the free importation of of food and even you know beef during a mad cow scare, but that that when the when we want to apply that same free markets uh, standard to medicines. That's not okay. So in other words, if you look at it holistically, we're actually allowed to import foods and beef that might sicken people, but we're not allowed to import things that might cure people. That's the hypocrisy. That is a, a that it shows that that all of these narratives when it comes to economic issues are selectively applied. They are not applied universally. They are only applied when it might serve big money interests. Kim Stanley Robinson is a science fiction writer. 
And he once described the current reality as that we're living in a bad science fiction novel right now. Let's just say nothing changes. What do you see happening 10 and then 20 years down the line? Well, I think we see the fissures happening. I think we see um, we see a division now in economic statistics that I think preview what's coming. We see that GDP growth is growing. We see that Wall Street, the, you know, the Dow Jones is growing. We see that corporate profits are skyrocketing. All of that is a fact. At the same time, we see wages are stagnating and or going down. We see workers, health care, prescription drug, and retirement benefits being privatized and slashed. We see, in other words, the benefits of the economy going to a smaller and smaller segment of the population. There was a New York Times story a couple weeks ago that showed that the share of national income that is going to workers' wages is now at a 40-year low. This, again, is at the same time that corporate profits are skyrocketing, and even, even worse, that worker productivity is rising. And I don't mean worse, that it's bad that worker productivity is rising. What I'm saying is, is that workers are getting less and less share of the national wealth. At the, at, at the same time, they are increasing the amount that they are producing per hour. So ultimately, I think that we're going, if, this, if we don't work to restructure our economy so that more of the benefits go to a majority of the people, we're going to quite literally be living in a wholly stratified situation where there will be no middle class, there will be a small number of extremely wealthy people, and there will be a large number of, of poor people. Of, of people who are, if not in poverty, then living well below the living standards that our country uh, has worked so hard to achieve. What can we do to change this? What can each of us do right now to change this? I would say that the biggest thing people can do is start getting involved at a very local level. Uh, that the hostile takeover of our government by big money interests is less pronounced at as you go down the food the political food chain, that we have to start realizing that our state legislators, our, our county commissioners, our city council people, uh, our local elected officials can be made to stand up for us. They deal with policies that often affect our daily economic lives in a far more profound way than, than even the presidency or Congress. That if you put 20 people in the room with your state legislator or your city council person and you say we want you to do this or we're going to work to vote you out of office, that they might not do exactly what you want, but they are listening in a far more intense way than your congressman, your senator, your governor, or your president. Similarly, if we realize that the hostile takeover of our government has been a 30 or 40 year process, we have to realize that taking our government back is going to be a long process. It's not going to be the next election. It's not going to be two elections from now. This is a big battle. And so if we accept that, then we should take the long view and understand that our state legislators, our city council people, our local elected officials, they are tomorrow's congressmen, senators, governors, and presidents. And that we need to get to them now and start demanding accountability from them now so as to show them that there is a political cost to pay if they betray us and there is political support to be gained if they stand up for us. 
I've been speaking with David Sirota. His new book is Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Can Take It Back. Thanks for speaking with me, David. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.